what we've decided self-care looks like in the wellness context is that it's not actually a full 360 view of self-care because if you drink green juice and do yoga every day but you're a jerk or you're a racist or you don't check your implicit bias or you are classist or any of those things right if you are engaging the patriarchy in a way that's not healthy um then you're actually not loving yourself because um our wellness is uh not just physical citizen podcast Welcome to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. All right, y'all. Today we're talking with writer, producer, and entrepreneur Anasa Troutman, who besides being a well-known cultural disruptor and love activist, is challenging us to go beyond justice towards sustainable joy for all. But before we get into it, I want to let you know about a special online event we're hosting on December 12th with Anasa and myself called Joy and Justice. Over the last few years, we've been building a community of support on Patreon, which is a monthly membership featuring early access to the podcast, online meetups, and action toolkits that allow us to keep doing the work of creating content that matters for citizens who care. And so to end the year with appreciation, we've designed this online immersion just for you. Would love it if you could join us in celebration and support. You can go to bit.ly slash citizenjoy, C-T-Z-N joy, to sign up. Now back to the show. I haven't been able to stop thinking about this one thing Anasa said in our conversation. She said, you can't transform something that you don't love. And as someone deeply committed to personal and collective transformation, it had me reflecting on how I love, not how do I do more activism or be a better ally, but how do I love for real? That too is justice. Justice calls us not only to correct whatever is in the way of love, but it also invites us to live into that love. And that inquiry starts with self-love, because how we love ourselves is how we love everyone else. But the truth is, we live in a culture that does not reinforce self-love. It says, love yourself only when you are smarter, healthier, more productive, more perfect. We are taught that love is conditional. And so it's no wonder that we project conditional love onto others and make choices that are not loving to the whole of humanity. But when we can claim radical love for ourselves, the kind that is expressed through grace and compassion and forgiveness, then we can start to extend that kind of love outwards in relationship, in how we repair the breach and love across lines of difference and disagreement, and in how we love through our choices, through our votes, and especially through our money. Anasa reminds us that love is not some idea or intention. Love is who we are and what we do. And when we embody that kind of love fully, then justice and joy will flow. This conversation is a reminder and realignment with the very thing that is most important and essential to our work. Love. Check it out. Okay, I feel like I need better light than lighting. Is that better? No. <laughs> Whatever. Let's let's adjust our lighting. <laughs> Hold on, I'm gonna apply some lipstick too. 
<laughs> I got myself all dolled up for you this morning. You Elsa. look amazing. Yeah? You do. I, I even put mascara on, which I don't <laughs> normally do. So um, welcome, y'all. This is Monday Morning with Anasa Troutman <laughs> and Carrie Kelly, our new podcast. <laughs> If you can only see us now. Oh my God, I would totally (laughs) listen to that. Yes, Monday This is a V-cast, a video cast (laughs) on Monday morning, complete with our throat coat, coffee, and whatever else is necessary on a Monday morning. Traditional medicinals. Traditional medicinals. Um, But for real, y'all, I'm here with one of my favorite people on the planet, Anasa Troutman. And um, what can I say about you, Anasa? You have been Mm. such a dear friend and teacher and inspiration and um, cultural disruptor mm. and and also like um, the kind of person that always helps me remember what's most important about oh, the work. so nice. Thank always. You like you that. always get me right back on track. It's like alignment. <sighs> That's <laughs> so I'm freaking so excited you're here I'm with excited us today. Too. I, you know how much I adore you. This is going to be the best conversation ever in life. It also wait. might be the longest because <laughs> I have so many things I want to talk to you about. But I, I just want to, I just want to say that maybe this is the first yes. of many conversations yeah, that we can totally. have. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we're going to have our own podcast and everything. Besides that, right? And I, universe. I just was back. I was literally about to say that my favorite podcast is The Big We. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thinking like The Big We Citizen. Ooh. <laughs> the Big listen. Citizen We. Citizens of The Big We. Citizens of The Big yeah. We. I mean, like that's we the could whole, do. I mean, our podcasts are so aligned, Carrie. We're both talking about the same thing. It's like, how do we, how do we see each other? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it is that, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't it? It's like, I heard you say something recently about... Um, this work is really about um, finding our place in the mm. world and being in right relationship to one another. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I meant by you <laughs> remind me of what's most important, right? Because mm. I think it's easy to get caught up in the the vernacular, yeah. right? Or the, the cultural narrative yeah. of like what's the most popular thing to be talking about in culture yeah. and justice. And then I talk to you and I'm like, oh, no, it's about relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so. I mean, if if you I mean, this is a bit of a leap for some people. But if you truly believe that we're all connected, which I assume that most of your listeners do since you're, you know, always talking about wellness and, you know, being connected and all that then yeah then there's nothing more important than relationship because if the premise is we're all connected then you our work really is figuring out how to honor that connection to me which is back to alignment i think (laughs) right yeah because we're totally out of alignment we don't we're not even in right relationship with ourselves much less people who are um, who seem um foreign or different or um other right so uh, Mm -hmm. we're born into this context where where most of the people are um people who we other for one reason or another and it feels to me like our most important journey is getting from that context to like oh actually we are all the same and and i need to um transform my own behavior and way of being based on the based on that um realization 
which is why our podcast is called The Big We, because it's really about how we um, do the work of becoming realigned with the truth that we're all connected and how we inspire other people to do that um, through the conversations that we have and the um, cultural productions that we talk about on the show. We're very... um, intentional about what we talk about on the show because we are are having a particular conversation about um connection yeah and you know it's funny I love this word alignment because because I do believe that most people who listen to Mm. our podcast and your podcast believe in interdependence believe Mm -hmm. that we're all connected Mm -hmm. and yet culture is saying something very different all the time, right? Culture is like, oh yeah, of course. Like in in wellness world, we say like we are one all the time and then we behave like we are isolated and Mm -hmm. separate. Mm -hmm. Right? And there's that paradox happening constantly. Yeah, well, the the other side of alignment is embodiment. And that's really the hard part because you you can't have real alignment unless you have embodiment. And, and we, which, I mean, culturally, we feel like if we say the thing and we look like the thing, and we buy the outfit for the thing and we go to the event for the thing, then we are the thing. But um, nothing, nothing replaces embodiment. And it's also the hardest part of it, <laughs> like the embodying of the values and the embodiment of the knowing that we're all connected is the work that like doing that part of it is the actual work. The other parts are easy when they flow from that place yeah Mm -hmm. so you were saying you know we we can't be in relationship with other folks with with one another if we're not in right relationship with ourselves Mm -hmm. so let's let's start there right (laughs) because embodiment is a part of that like how are we not and I would I just would love to hear from you and I like I can do like I, mm-hmm. I know all the ways in which I'm out of alignment with <laughs> my integrity and my truth mm-hmm. right and how that's a constant choice yeah. I'm making yeah what does that look like for us like where do yeah. you feel like we're out of alignment with ourselves oh lord I just figured we'd start <laughs> existentially wow. <laughs> Good morning, Anasa. Good morning. I mean, (laughs) I mean, so I could answer. There's so many entry points to that question. Um, I mean, it's interesting, Carrie, because here in America, in the United States of America, where we were both born and raised, um, it's difficult to it's difficult to be in alignment because like you said like there's one thing that's living in your heart and your being and there's a, a there's a whole different thing living outside of you so when I talk about culture I talk about soup and I I make mm-hmm. a correlation between um, like regardless of what kind of noodle you are the the flavor of you depends on the broth that you're in Mm. And so even if you're like, but I am a whole wheat noodle or I am a rice noodle that's gluten free or I am a whatever, whatever noodle you say you are, if you're sitting in some chicken broth, you're going to taste like chicken. And Mm. so Mm -hmm. it is very difficult to be born and raised and have the DNA of one culture literally um, running through your body, you know? Um, and then like fight to say, well, I have this feeling, this vision of connectivity in my heart and I want to live it every day. Cause you're, you're literally swimming in something else. <laughs> it's just like every time you take another 
you know, lap across the bowl, you're like literally ingesting chicken broth. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? So it's Mm. very, 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 very difficult, which is why um, I do the work I do because while I um, value, respect, honor, and I'm so grateful for the people who do frontline work every day when we're talking about social issues, um, that is not um, by itself going to get us to the vision that we talk about all the time because if we're not if we're not changing the broth out mm-hmm. um then we're not going to ever not taste like chicken mm-hmm. okay not so ever. i hear what this reminds me of is there's there's that famous saying that um white supremacy is not the shark it's the water mm-hmm. I never heard which right before. reminds me of it's not the noodle it's the broth that's right <laughs> you know? that's right um but i that's hear right. like two things that feel important and and hard Mm. one thing is you know if we're steeped Mm -hmm. in the broth um you know one thing that says to me is that it's 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 really hard to unlearn it's really hard to unfuse right (laughs) the the saturation of culture in our system and in our psyche um and the other thing it says is that i think is that you know, we're going to get this wrong, like all the time. (laughs) Like we're going to, we're going to be like, oh shit, I'm the broth again. And I mean, and I say that with humility, like in some way that makes me breathe a little more because, Mm -hmm. because I think we're, you know, part of the culture of othering is, is the, you know, the good, bad binary of like, you're either good at this or you're bad at this. And I hear what I hear you saying is it's both Mm -hmm. and, and everybody is steeped in this. Yeah. I feel like if we if we spent as much time investigating our own privilege and our own um, participation in the culture that we're talking about, this culture of extraction and domination and the lie of separation, and all however you say it, if we spend as much time examining how we participate in that as we do blaming other people for the way that they participate we actually that actually will be transformed that's the that's the transformation Mm. because we don't I mean if you (laughs) just like emotional health 101 is like you can't change people Mm -hmm. that's in any relationship in family in a romantic relationship at work like the basic like therapy 101 is like you cannot change someone else you're responsible for you and how you are and how you show up and we don't often do that work even Mm -hmm. as people who have a vision for um for whatever you want to call it world peace or equity or justice or whatever the language is unfettered joy for all people like whatever your language is um that's not that's not how we spend our time and we mm-hmm. often um expect for other people to do the work that we're not willing to do because it looks a certain way over there right it's easy to look at you know this group of people and say you are a horrible person you need to change and be better um and then we don't look at our own um biases our own um, participation and disconnection, our own inability or unwillingness actually to um, to love people more deeply, including the people that we think are doing terrible things. Like, what is it? <laughs> when I think about love, I think about what it means to love myself, what it means to love 
someone who I will never meet. Like, I always talk about this imaginary woman um, in Bangladesh. I'm like, there's a woman in Bangladesh I'm never going to meet. How do I love her? And then how mm-hmm. do I love the person who I feel like has harmed me? Whether mm-hmm. it's politically, so- socially, spiritually, or personally. And those are the three people that I think about because loving, like loving you, Carrie, is so easy because you're my friend. I, when I look at you, I'm like, she's so wonderful. We believe in the same things. She's been so supportive. We've had such fun in our lives together. Like loving you is not a conversation, but it is way harder to one, love myself, which is a whole mind trip in it of itself Two, to to love someone I'll never meet. And three, to love somebody who I feel like, has screwed me over or Mm -hmm. is perpetuating systemic racism or who is, you know, looks at me and doesn't see me because I'm a black woman or whatever those things are. Like how loving those people is my own personal pathway to world peace (laughs) because Mm -hmm. um, until and unless we can look at those people and not other them, then... I don't know how we're supposed to get there. It's funny, and I feel like you're also naming one of the things I'm really struggling with right now, which is even for the people I love most in my life, mm-hmm. how to love them without control mm. and without <laughs> attachment. Right? Because you said that right when you started, and I was like, oh, shit, she's saying the thing I'm supposed to be doing right now. But, like, well, that's hard, right? Because, I, because like, um, sometimes, right, I think, con- I think love – looks like I'm going to help you or I'm going to fix you. That's right. Um, And I think that has to do with the way that I love myself, which is I I love myself conditionally. Like I love myself Mm -hmm. to the point of being right or to the point of being perfect Mm -hmm. or to the point of being right, acceptable or politically correct. And beyond that, I can't love myself. And so that's how I treat everybody else in my life. Yeah. And love is not control. Which is why, um, which is why I think that global transformation starts with love of the self, because how you love yourself is how you love everybody else, and I, and like whether whether you're a Christian or not, the um, the passage in the Bible that says like, oh, Jesus, there are all these rules, and which one which ones of the rules are like really important? Do we have to do all this stuff? And Jesus says, well. Um, all you really have to do is love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. So whether you're a Christian or not, people know that, right? And it's like, it makes sense. It's like the whole do unto others as you, all that. But the problem there is that we are not taught in the society to love ourselves. And so we have no basis for which we can then go out and love our neighbor. And if we're not able to do the work of loving our neighbor in an authentic way, because it's based on this rubric of how we love ourselves, then we're kind of screwed, honestly. Like, <laughs> But it's not cultural for us to say to children, here, you are valuable, you are beautiful, you are wonderful, and here is how you love and honor yourself. Here is how you give yourself um, grace and That's forgiveness, right. and here is how you give your, yourself um, space to grow and imagine and explore and be... A, well, we don't do that for children, and so if you um, don't have that for yourself, there's absolutely no way you can give it to someone. I used to date this really terrible guy, but the one thing that I remember that he used to say was you only um, you only have what you give and you can only give what you have. Mm-hmm. And so if you mm-hmm. um, don't have 
grace, forgiveness, joy, peace, love for yourself, there's actually no way for you to be a participant in the liberation of humans all over the globe. There's mm-hmm. literally no way that you can do that fully. And this is this is refreshing for me because I feel like in some ways I'm fighting a battle on another front, mm. which is, you know, I'm steeped, talk about culture, in yeah. a wellness culture. Yeah. That actually says, love yourself, yeah. Yeah. take care of yourself, um, drink green juice, yeah. you know, make <laughs> yeah. yourself into like a bendy, skinny thing, yeah. right? Yeah. And don't worry about everyone else. Just yeah. worry about yourself, right? So I feel like what you're saying, and, okay. and so I've been fighting this battle uh, of like yeah. mutuality and collective care. Yeah. But what I hear you saying that feels important, and I feel like this is really relevant in my life right now, is that... Um, it's also not enough to just care for others or to just be focused right on the collective and bypass our own responsibility the same way that it's not healthy or complete to be just focused on the self without considering the interconnectivity right of our collective health the quote is love your neighbor as you love yourself not love yourself it didn't say love god and love yourself right right it said like the the imperative was love your neighbor like as yourself was the rubric <laughs> and the right. context, but the imperative is to love God and to love other people. Right. And so, no, it's not enough. And, and <laughs> yes. And, and, and one of the things that is um, so harmful about the wellness movement is that it lets people off the hook. Unless people feel like, oh, I am engaging in self-care. I am doing yoga. I am drinking green juice. But it doesn't, um, and, it, and it allows people to say that they're participating in the creation of peace across the world just by doing those things um, when it's just not true. Like if you are, um, if, if <laughs> well, well, let me go back. It is true. However, what we've decided self-care looks like in the wellness context is that is not actually a full 360 view of self-care because if you drink green juice and do yoga every day, but you're a jerk or you're a racist or you don't check your implicit bias or you are classist or any of those things, right? If you are engaging the patriarchy in a way that's not healthy, um, then you're actually not loving yourself because um, our wellness is uh not just physical it's also a social emotional you know spiritual in all those ways and so if you are um if you are engaging in the oppression of other people your soul is not well your mind and your heart are not well even if you're if you are like um drunk off the off the green juice of life like if you are um <laughs> if you are um engaging in the oppression of other people you're not well you're not which means for me that none of us are well because we are all engaging in the oppression of someone because that is what our culture is our our culture is about um (laughs) spiritual emotional colonialism like that's who i mean as americans that's in the dna of our nation it's it's we, you can't get away from it. And, and it's um, healthier and easier for those of us who acknowledge that and like work with it and work um, and work through it. But for those of us who can't even imagine <laughs> the, 
that that's the truth. No, no. The wellness is so far away. It's like completely out of reach. And you can't even say, wow, our economy is built on a slave economy. And we all are participating in that. We're all affected and we're all um, acting outside of um, our nature because we are living in a slave economy. I don't care how much money you make or how what your color is, we're all doing that because that's the economic foundation for our nation is a slave economy. So we're all participating. If you can't even hear me say that and not cringe and turn your head away, then wellness is very, 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 very much out of your reach. Well, and, you know, and has been very, has become really a weapon of colonialism in many yeah. ways, right? Like it, <laughs> it's, it, it's become the manifestation of the very thing that you name, like yep. the commercialism, the yep. appropriation That's of the right. culture that it comes from. Yep. Um, and certainly the whiteness and the of wellness, right, of wellness, the, the productivity orientation mm-hmm. of wellness all yeah. stems from those ideologies that are making us fucking really sick. Well, because it's in our DNA, you can't get away from it. I don't care what you call it or what your intention is, it's in there. And if you're not actively rooting it out and replacing it with something that is more authentic, then you're going to participate. So the deeper, deeper. So how do we, so I'm thinking about (laughs) our wellness, like wellness that's interconnected and interdependent Mm -hmm. and how... And how it's not one more juice fast, right? It's right. It's not the. It's not ta- and it's not tactical politics either, no, right? So like, there's know. an analogy of like that surface way in which we respond and continue <laughs> to bypass the deeper work. Yeah. Like, what does the deeper work look like, Anasa? That can help us. I don't want to say help us get well because that feels like, mm. like, idealistic, but mm-hmm. helps us move towards real embodied wellness the kind that you're you're speaking about you know what's so what i'm thinking about right now and this is very woo woo so i'm just gonna say that right now so welcome to the (laughs) podcast (laughs) so there um do you know abraham hicks carrie yeah yeah so abraham says like in a moment where you're in total despair like if you're like, I want to be completely joyful, like you actually can't get there. She's, they say you can't get there from here. So the the goal um, in a moment of total despair cannot be absolute blissful joy because it's actually not attainable. What you need in that moment is relief. And then um, every stage of relief gets you closer and closer to actually being in, in reach of, of unfettered joy. And so what I would say about like what is what is how do we do that in this moment is that like complete and total um, unfettered joy for all humans and feeling of liberation and full choices is really not attainable from where we are right now. It's just not. And um, what I am working for in my life and for the people around me and the people who I have influence um, over or with or whatever is like awareness, honestly, because um if we're talking about culture and we and we, and if we believe that our culture is the number one barrier between 
where we are and where we want to go, then that then that is where our work is. It's about how we understand what culture is, understand how culture works, understand what drives culture, and then go to the heart of that and work to transform those things in ourselves. So I I um, believe that culture is dictated by our core values, right? And so there is like this value um, of hypercapitalism, myopic individualism, and the things that make us choose people, um, choose money over people all the time. Like that to me is what the DNA of our culture is. It's like some folks who came here and were like, we, oh, this land is so nice. We need it. Well, there's some people here. Well, we don't care. We choose this, this land and this resource over these people. Right. And then they're like, oh, well, well now we need to figure out how to get the land cultivated and and worked and make it um, profit. Well, let's go find some people who can work it. Well, they're actual humans. Well, no, we don't care about that. (laughs) We care about getting free labor. So we're going to choose this, the, the, the possibility of profit and resources over these people again. And our entire culture, our economy, our way of being, the way we relate, our conversation about a, a racial construct, gender, all that stuff is 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 built on the DNA of we don't care about these humans, we, re- we care about this money. And so um, if we want to change our culture, like the simple way to say it is like, well, we can we just reverse that? Can we say actually people are more important than resources or money or, or economic growth? And can we make choices that put people first? Can we start there? That's like the most basic thing is like in like your a reorientation, ba- basic one-on-one, like super easy to get to reorientation is like, can we start with saying people are more important than money? No matter what, like in any circumstance, no matter what, people are more important than money, profits, whatever, however, whatever, however you contextualize it for yourself. Like starting there is fantastic. And can we um, get so deep with that conversation that it turns into a conversation about love as a core value as opposed to individualism extraction? Like, can we actually get to what does love look like um, in community and family in policy in economics and all those things and translate um love in a practical way where we actually where the, the practical application of that is um putting people first but that is actually coming from a from a knowing that we're all connected a knowing that we're learning how to honor that connection a knowing that we have to embody that connection in our own lives first before we expect other people to embody that connection and then go from there and then we can get to bliss and unfettered joy and choices for all humans. But until we can even have that conversation, because we actually, all of us choose money over people literally every day, mm-hmm. every day we do it with how we, all make, of us, all of every single one of us, like I'm, every single, I, the easiest thing I can say is like, if you think about go in your closet and think about who made the clothes in your closet, how much they were paid and how much you paid for it can, uh, in compared to the labor that was put into it. And if you cannot go in your closet and say all of my clothes were made sustainably and justly thinking about the, um, the person who made it and the planet, right. And the resources that it required to make that, then you, I don't know anybody who could say that. 
I, don't I feel like that's important, that. right? Because I think some people feel, I, I, I mean, I've heard, especially in wellness, right, where, where there's like a purity culture feel yes. like above. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not, I'm in a healthier version of capitalism. That's right. Even kind of like the conversation I feel like around purpose-driven Girl, right, like, do not get me started on that. <laughs> right, like there's a lot of shades of, oh. right, of Oy. like conscious capitalism. I'm not like, but like that do- isn't going to the root of the root of the root. I feel like that yeah. you're naming, which is under no circumstances will we put profits over people. No That's one. Right. I don't hear anybody saying that. And I feel like Nobody until we hear that, that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually spent the last few months. Um, because I've, I had, I've been through, I, I, I moved to Memphis a couple of years ago and have gone through this like incredible journey in Memphis. And the thing that Memphis has taught me was that healing is not possible if you don't have control over your own resources. And so I've been like in this conversation about new economy and impact investing and all of these like economically based conversations. Cause I'm, um, curious about, the connection between economics, resources, and, and personal and community liberation. So, wow. some of the some of the conversations have been amazing, and I don't want to like throw um, any like whole industry under any kind of bus. But what I will say is that it's been very disappointing to discover that. A lot of people who are engaging in impact investing or doing this like healthier version of capitalism um, are embodying the same values of traditional business. It's still, you know, this much, this much of a return, this much of a profit, this much of a whatever, no matter at what. At all costs. At all costs. And it's still, in a lot of cases, a room um, full of white men who are looking for other white men who are doing the same conscious capitalism with air quotes around it. And I'm... while I appreciate, um, you know, like the direction, it's actually, in my mind, um, no, no better, no better. Well, and it also reeks of the American dream, right? Like we oh, have a history gosh. in this country of repackaging That's right. ourselves, That's right. right? To like look better, to be mm-hmm. shinier and happier mm-hmm. and more cu- culturally acceptable. Mm-hmm. But we're, we're only, we're simply like moving the line. Like yes. we're not really transforming anything. And I no. see that there's a great book called Winner Takes All by um, Anand Gira Doradas that, mm. that talks about this. He calls it the elite charade of changing mm. the world about all these change makers <laughs> coming out of Silicon Valley and even philanthropy who are, you know, capitalist masked, yeah, and trying to save the world. And it's sort yep. of white saviorism all over again. And, and I just say that as a person who's in this work, as a white person who's in yep. this work and, and constantly reckoning with that. Like we... Yep. And you and I have talked about this before. Like, I don't know what to make of our business model, right? Because every way in which I build one, Mm -hmm. there's a complicitness and a participation, right? In, um, and and I'm so appreciative of the work that Taj is doing and and cooperative economics Mm -hmm. and transitional economics. But I'm, Mm -hmm. I really struggle with how to stand in this really in-between place, sort of like what you were saying before of like, we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. And so we have to stand in the shit, Yep, we do. 
<laughs> we, I mean, we do, and and we have to get comfortable with that because that thing, like you're like this this puritanical, like we are good. <laughs> that thing get in your way every time. It will get yeah. in your way every time because we are all we we are good, but we're all good and we're all bad. I have, <laughs> I have my my new like um personal growth thing right now is I have had a friend tell me a couple weeks ago I need to embrace my dark side, which like totally freaked me out because if you know me, you know that I am like committed to goodness and joy and love and good hugs and all that, and so the thought of like what it meant to embrace my dark side was very scary for me, but I also know that it is absolutely the right thing to do. And, um, because we all, we are all whole people. We are all living in a very complex, um, set of, um, rules in our lives. And you have to be able to look at your whole self and say, like, I am here is here is where I'm great and I'm very excited. I want to grow it. And here's where I'm not doing it. And I need to look at that and love it and transform it because you can't transform something that you don't love. You can't. You have to embrace it and be able to look it in the face and be like, oh, my gosh, look at you. You're so cute. Can we just we need to push you over this side? <laughs> we have to push you over here. And... um. Mm. We have to be able to to know that we're that we're that we're like we're in it, we're we're in it, we're all in it, we're all in it. And I and I and I want to be intentional about saying like acknowledging that we're all in it doesn't excuse those of us who appear more egregious than the others. So I don't want to say like we're all damaging the planet. So don't be mad at Exxon or whoever. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't hold those people accountable. I think the the that those things are important. But I'm saying to do that and not do that for ourselves is actually out of integrity of the work that we say that we're doing out in the world. Well, and I think that's just part of the dis- the practice of discernment, right? Like yes. we may be all steeped in this broth, but we're all located in different <laughs> places, right? We yeah. all have different privileges and proximity. It yeah. sort of goes back to what you were saying before. Yeah. And um and. Um, and then, right. And then if you layer in like collective institutions and government and corporate, all that too, right, has yeah. a different place and role, but we have yeah. to reckon with that. And I think part of like the, 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 I think the challenge and the need in truth telling is to be able to hold that complexity. Like, mm-hmm. yes, mm-hmm. we're all complicit and no, we're not all complicit in the same way. Mm-mm. That's right. You know, that's right. And like, I mean, I think the foundations are a great example of this conversation. And like to take it back to this the economic conversation because if you are um, like on the outside, foundations are like this is amazing. We give millions. Like I saw something yesterday that there was like two hundred and thirty seven billion dollars given away last year, something like that between foundations and individual giving. If you just think about the foundations. Um, and on the outside, it's like these foundations are giving away billions of dollars a year in the name of love, justice, humanity, you know, animal health, planetary, what all those things. And then you say, well, yes, that is absolutely true. And as a as folks who have been in the nonprofit industry in one way or another for many years, we have all benefited from the 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 foundation world and the money that comes out of that context and 
Um, it's also important to know that foundations were not set up to do good. They were set up to protect the wealth of the top 1% or whatever it was at the time. And continue and, to do that. And, and the law is set up so that whatever is in your endowment. So if I hit it rich and I'm like, I put a hundred million dollars in this endowment. The law says that I only have to give away 5% of that endowment. Right. And so amazing. I've given away 5% of my hundred million. So I gave away $5 million on the outside. I can be like, I gave away $5 million. I am so wonderful. And I've done so much good. But on the other side, I have $95 million sitting in an investment account with Merrill Lynch or someone else. And they're investing $95 million in oil, in private prisons, in big ag, in all kinds of stuff that literally undermines every penny of that $5 million that I've put in for justice work or whatever the thing is. And so Mm. it's a really complicated, it's complicated. It's a complicated set of smoke and mirror stuff. Right. And we have to be more, um, more courageous because the people who are running the foundations are not thinking, um, I am so excited to spend 95% of my money undermining the 5% I spent in the community. They're thinking our job is to make as much money as we can for our endowment. And here's how we're going to do that. Back to that core. That's right. And it's back to that core thing. It's like, actually, hyper-capitalist, this idea that we need to make as much money as possible in spite of the damage it does to the people, the planets, and the animals is alive and well, even in the most impactful social justice spaces. Right. And, and, and like, we have to start to be more courageous, more adventurous, more um, imaginative, for God's sake, about <laughs> the way that we are um, locating ourselves in the landscape and also acknowledge, like, acknowledging totally that this is, like, the most complex issue that humanity has ever had. And so I'm not expecting for there to be simple or fast solutions. But like I said, we can't get there. We can't get to solution from here. But what we can do is be like, holy crap, um, I'm responsible for $100 million, 95% of which I've just invested in oil companies. (laughs) Well, and it it feels like this too is about wholeness, right? Absolutely. One of the things I've heard you say is, is don't talk to me about diversity and inclusion. Talk to me about the truth. That's right. And I feel like that's what you're naming is like, don't look at 5% of the truth no, and say no. that that's everything. Look no. at the 100%, right? And yeah. I think that's, it's similar to what we're, what's happening in our country. We're saying, yeah. let's look at the 100% truth yeah. of who, the whole truth of who we are and how we got here. Yeah. If, if we want, right, to, to actually right. move forward and transform things. Yeah, and to bring that down even, like, to the granular level, like, because sometimes thinking about the $100 million is too much for us, but even if you're, like, a regular, everyday person who, in their mind, believes in justice, so, like, you're a wellness, you are you go to yoga class twice a week, you drink all the green juice, you do all the things, you even, like, volunteer or go to rallies or do the letter writing campaign or whatever it is that you do and you have a nine to five and your retirement account is invested in those same private prisons and oil companies. And so you're, you are undermining your own ability to impact change in the world because you spend your days 
doing the work of justice and you are um, committed to having the biggest retirement portfolio that you can. So you allow people to invest your retirement money in things that are actually undermining the work that you do during the day. And so that is just the reality of, of, of our society and is that it, unless you are super, super, super intentional, you are doing harm. You're doing harm. And we have to start to be able to um, have the courage to be able to look at that. Because if all the people who believe in justice divested their 401ks from private prisons and that would companies, that would be like that would transform our country. That alone, like we don't need anybody across the aisle or anyone of a different skin color or class or gender, anything to do anything. If all of those of us who decided, who who committed themselves to like love, peace, and justice, and we believe in love and we believe that we're all equal. Like if those, if it was just us, did that, did the work of like looking at our money and where our money goes and how we support um, the things that we don't believe in in public, that alone would do the work that we are trying to get other people to do for us. That alone. Yeah. And I feel like you're going back to like where we started this conversation, which is like kind of that personal reckoning, that personal interrogation yeah. of like, what do, what am I doing? Yeah. Let's start here. Like, what yeah. am I doing to contribute? Yeah. Right. And to continue to uphold these systems. But it's scary to do that, Carrie, because if you think about like the way, if you think about what it, the 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 commentary like the tape that is rolling at all times about money and what money means what money gives you access to what it means to not have access to resources in terms of like um your health your actual physical health depends on shelter access to resources your shelter your ability to enjoy life your ability to see to be seen as respected and loved by uh, out by people outside like considering all that it means like all the all that it means to have access to wealth, to ask people to put that down. We're not just asking people to put to, to make less money. We're asking them to have less respect, to be less safe, to have less ac- less access to health care, to education, to all of those things. And so mm-hmm. it's not like I don't take I don't take this conversation lightly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it, it is a it's a big thing in a in a society where money is everything, where literally we are choosing money over people. It is literally everything culturally. We're asking people to um, to to release their access to that. And that is a very, very, very tall order. It's a very, very, very big ask to ask someone in a society where money means life mm-hmm. to to turn away from, from that. And that is why we are still where we are. That is why we're here, because we have not figured out a way to um, to have access to life more abundantly without having access to wealth. And so, of course, of course, we're doing everything we can to get as much money as we can because it literally is a life and death conversation. And even if it's not, um, even if it's not one like in real life, uh, um, psycho-spiritually, it is. Mm -hmm. It is. We're wired to believe that the more money you have, the better your life is and the better Mm -hmm. you are the more worth you actually have. So for the to the conversation like all everybody wants is to be acknowledged and loved, we have taught 
our our children every generation after generation that that your actual ability to have love and value in the world is commiserate to your ability to to acquire wealth and so mm. we're asking people to not be loved <laughs> like we're like put down capitalism you're actually saying like be sad and lonely in a basement with the water dripping on your head it with That's no right. dignity no access to life and no community is what we're asking people to do which is not true, of course. We all know that right. community psychologically, and love and, that's what we. That's see. right, but psychologically, that's what we're asking people to do. I want to give a special shout out to our community of supporters on Patreon who are making it possible for us to do this work. Citizen Podcast was designed for truth seekers, bridge builders, and emerging activists who are yearning to make a difference. We're not afraid to ask hard questions and have radical dialogue about politics and patriarchy, white supremacy and worthiness, and we're serious about showing up for one another and taking action for the well-being of everyone. But making a good podcast takes a village. And so we're building one on Patreon. By joining our community for as little as $2 a month, you get lots of good stuff from us, like early access to our episodes, live meetups with guests, ally toolkits, and exclusive content. Not only does community support keep us going, but it keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent, and authentic. You can join us at patreon.com slash C-T-Z-N-W-E-L-L. So I want to... Um, um, I, I can just like, by the way, wallow in that for a while. <laughs> it's so intense because I'm just thinking about like, you know, even in the little choices that we make, I think sometimes to move in the direction of, I'm thinking about what you were talking about before around embodiment. Yeah. It can feel intolerable. It can feel like enormous anxiety, like to sit in the place of uns- yeah. financial un- uncertainty yeah. when you make choices like that. Um, yeah. But I also hear you saying that, um, that it is also a part of the cultural narrative that you have to give this big thing up, like you have to give it all up, yeah. when in fact we're also hearing really powerful stories about the reorganization, yes. the redistribution yes. of resources and money yes. um, that, that fuels, and I'm just thinking about how repair and reparations <laughs> play into that, right? Because that's that's rarely a part of the story that we're telling. And I think you're right. When people are like, I, they cling to, I, I, I will not let go of what I have yeah. for fear of losing myself, then we're never going to get out of this. Yeah. But if we tell a new story of what it looks like, right, to reorganize ourselves, yeah. to reorganize our money, to reorganize our culture in such a way that it takes care of more people. Like, is that yeah. not a better story? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this conversation about reparations and repair has been really interesting for me because, <clears throat> again, we're in this we're in this conversation where the dominant narrative about our culture says that it's about money, right? So in a capitalist society, you think about repair, then of course you're going to go directly to money. 
And I'm not saying that money is not owed because I think it, because I'm clear that it is. If you think about, if you, if, if all you think about is the unpaid wages of, you know, how many hundreds of years of labor and right. the unpaid um, value of land that was stolen. If you, even if that's all you think about. <clears throat> and the profit from it. And the profit from it that lingers today, right? Mm-hmm. Then, um, then it's about money. Then it's about money. Then, then, then it is about money, but it's not only about money. Right. Right. Because the impact of that land being taken and these people um, who were abused and like, be clear, it was beyond like, it wasn't just, hey, come here and work for free. It was come here and work for free and I'm going to do all the things that I need to do to bring um, terror upon you so that you will feel like that's what you have to do and, and um, what it means for me now to drink my own Kool-Aid and think that you actually deserve that, you're deserving of that, and that's all you're worthy of because I was taught, I was taught that, and all that that means now, right? So we're actually still living in that, in that, in that legacy, mm. right? And so, um, it's it's not just it is the money, but it's also like the legacy of poor health. And the generational impact of not having access to um, all the things that are healthy, like food, peace of mind, <laughs> um, right. um, fr- um, ability to, to roam and be free and to make choices for you and your children and like think about what that does. And there's research that shows that that trauma lives in the body and it pa- it's passed on through, the, through DNA. Right. So like if you can imagine, let's just keep it simple and think about 10 generations. Right. If you think about um, a, a woman or a man who was captured somewhere off the west coast of Africa, brought to this country, um, I was um, in a I, one of my friends just got her PhD last week. We were in her dissertation defense, and her her work is about um, the use of biomethography and and speculative fiction for Black women's healing. And so there was a big conversation about um, about that. And one of the things that the the what her uh, the chair of her uh, dissertation committee said was that I'm not going to get this right, but it was something like slavery was the first um, alien encounter. It was like if you think about somebody who is just living in their home doing their thing, and all of a sudden they're captured by someone who they who's not recognizable Whoa. physically. They're taken on a vessel across water Whoa. and are poked and prodded and abused and and subjugated and made to work. It was like she. Mm-hmm. I was like, crap. Like yes, this is like an alien abduction. So you think about. Um, what it would mean for a man or a woman <clears throat> to be captured, removed from their family, removed from their language, their cultures, their spirituality, their practices, all of that stuff, brought to a new place, abused, um, terrorized, um, 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 being made to feel like if they didn't do what they were told, they would be killed, beaten, their children ripped from them. Like if you think about the trauma of that one person's life, yeah. right? And then you think about the DNA of that being passed and compounded over 10 generations and what that would do to a person. Like, it's not just like, oh, I'm going to write you a check and you're going to feel better. This is not real. 
It's not real. And or it's not it's, complete. It's incomplete. And if you think about the person who captured that per that human and subjugated them and terrorized them and 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 raped them and all the things that that were done and then you take the trauma of that because what does that do to you as a human to do that to another person what is the experience what is the traumatic experience of the colonizer and acknowledged or not and what does it mean for that person to take that dna through 10 generations compounded and you can't just be like i'm gonna write you a check and i'm gonna be better Right, because there's so much internalized supremacy. So much, yeah, internalized supremacy and all the things, right? And so I'm not saying don't write the check, and I'm not saying don't redistribute well, because that is absolutely the number one first step that we have to make. Because, like I said earlier, healing is not possible if you don't have control over your resources. So, like, I'm not asking you to write me a grant or, like, let me live in your home. I'm asking you to, like, these resources actually are are mine unjustly. These actually should belong to you. So, these resources are going to go over there and you will control them and you will figure out what needs to happen with them to be able to heal yourself and your community. So, that's step one. But it's not the it's not the only step. And this conversation about repair and like when we talk about repair, the question that comes up for me is like repairing what? Mm -hmm. And it goes back to that conversation about relationship. It's like healing the relationship between those of us who think that we're white and those of us who think that we're black and all those other people who got caught up (laughs) in between. And those of us who think that we are um, indigenous and those of us who think that we are white Mm -hmm. because those like two original humongous crimes against humanity that happen on this soil that we call the United States of America, they must be atoned for. They must be addressed. They must be looked at in the face. They must be, um, they, <laughs> they have to be healed or else we're going to be sitting right here in another 400 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. It just not, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot have the country that we are talking about unless those two um, things are addressed the and wounds. atoned for. It's just not going to happen. I don't care. I don't give a damn how many laws we pass. I don't care. <laughs> it doesn't matter because underneath there's going to be this rip in our in our human fabric that needs to be addressed and healed. It has to be. And I feel like, you know, it's hard. I think it's hard for people to, I mean, you were saying before, like, we need imagination. And I think we have a crisis of imagination because because we've never we've never lived into integrity in this country in the way in which you're describing. So we don't know what it looks like. And I feel like in many ways, I don't even think it's possible, I think. I mean, it feels hard. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. And and this is where I feel like your work around story is really mm-hmm. powerful um, mm-hmm. because we need to live into the new truth because we we haven't ever experienced it before. And I, I love the ways in which you're weaving story into a mm. lot of your reparation work. And there's mm. there's two there's two things I wanted to um, to lift up mm-hmm. because I think you talking about it and telling the story of these two projects is going to help us all see a new vision of what reparations could look like and and healing um and one is the restoration of um uh the memphis Mm, historic um, claiborne temple claiborne temple yes um and the other is the the (laughs) troutman institute of wellness equity 
right and 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 kind of speaking to the you know if not money be, and, and i yes. and i agree with you like money is a part of it yeah. um there is you know there's land there's the restoration yes. and reclaiming of yes. land i'm thinking yes. 40 acres and a mule mm-hmm. was a part of that sever mm-hmm. and then there's the the psychic and spiritual restoration mm-hmm. that that's about yeah. our health and our, our wellness. And so I'd love for you to tell the story of like what reparations looks like in those two projects for us. I will. I'm happy to. Um, so I want to first give a disclaimer and say that there's a lot about this conversation of, about land that I'm still navigating because mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it feels disingenuous for me to have a conversation about like the reclamation of land and not think about this is like way out there just a heads up (laughs) i'm like well how do we talk about land and land ownership and land um as a opportunity for communities to build wealth collectively and not um think about our indigenous family and absolutely what it means that we're actually talking about reclamation and restoration of land that is not ours Ours. either as Mm African-Americans. Right. So even if every white person in all of America was like, this is not our land, let's give it to all the black people. Like that doesn't actually solve the problem. Right. And And the idea of property as owned is another part of that. what I was about to say is like, and that's another example to me of like, how do we get there from here? Because ownership is not even a conversation in the indigenous context. So we're talking about real repair and real restoration. It's like the restoration of the idea that land is a collectively hold resource that, um, that we honor and respect and we take care of and we steward, not own. Right. Yes. But it's, but I can't go, maybe I can't, I don't yet know how to say, um, um, Hey, let's have this land be owned by itself Mm -hmm. and let's be stewards and let's live on it and with it and love it and let it love us back and negotiate who lives on it and who doesn't based on the seasons and the whatever the thing is right like that's what I really want to do to be completely honest but I don't have a clue how to get there yeah you're holding the question though which I am holding the question though and I and I'm looking for people to hold that question with me um because I don't know how to do that um so that's like I want to say that First and foremost, I don't think that the work I'm doing right now around land um, in Memphis is is getting there. Like, even if I'm 100% successful, I'm still going to feel like, yep, this isn't it. This is a good place to stop on the journey for now. But, like, that's not it. Um, so there's that. So in Memphis, there is this building. It's called um, Historic Claiborne Temple. And so let me back up to say this, because this will help give context, is I have a cultural strategy firm. It's called Culture Shift Creative. And the work that we do is about um, identifying, um, removing, and replacing barriers to what we call cultural wellness. So how do we have a culture that is well, that gives rise to policies, practices, communities, ways of being that are also well, knowing that our um, policies, practices, and ways of being right now that are... um, out of whack comes from a culture that's out of whack. So we are we are wholly focused on on cultural transformation, so that the ways that we live and and and, and exist with each other are based in in a place of health and love and all that place, right? So that's important to know. So 
I came, um, and if you don't know what cultural strategy is, it's really about how to leverage stories for social impact. It's like how to tell a mm. story that involve that embodies a core value. Um, and then allow people the opportunity to engage in that story, engage with, with each other about that story, and then have a place to practice how to live that story in their everyday life. That's what, what we do at, at Culture Shift Creative. And so we um, both do the storytelling work and the engagement work and the work of embodiment. We do all those things. We do like a, like a holistic approach to um, to creating new opportunities and having people be able to reimagine the way that they live with each other. We, we say it's, we go from imagination to impact. Mm -hmm. So I, um, was invited to Memphis two years ago to, um, actually produce a musical about the sanitation worker strike of 1968. And if you know about that strike, if you don't know about that strike, that is the strike. If you've ever seen like the, um, iconic, I am a man signs, those were um, produced out of that out of that march. Um, the the um, the longer story is that um, the uh, sanitation worker strike campaign was Martin Luther King's last campaign before he was assassinated. He was yep. in Memphis um, for that march when he was assassinated. And the reason why he invested his time and energy in that march was because for a year before he died, he had he had been talking about expanding their work from racial justice to to the work of race, economy and militarism, because he was like this racial this race thing is like not it's not it. It's not all of it. It's like a very important part of the conversation. But we're not talking about class and we're not talking about militarism. We're actually missing the boat and we're only having a small part of the conversation was required for us to actually be free as a country. And so in that year, which was the most difficult, um, um, and, and, and there's a lot of evidence that it was like the most depressed year of his life, that he was sad a lot um, because he was losing, losing um, friends, losing um, financial supporters, and people saying to him, like, stop talking about class. Like, stop talking about class. Let's focus on race. This thing is working. It's going to be great. You're making us look crazy. And he's like, no, I'm clear that this is the work. We have to move forward. And he came to Memphis because it was the place in the country that was having a conversation about the juxtaposition of race and class. Mm -hmm. And he thought, well, if I go to Memphis and I can help them make that work, then I have an exemplar that I can use and take around the country and build this poor people's campaign that he wanted to build, right? There's a great, 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 great documentary called King in the Wilderness. Like that mm. is that movie is everything. It'll like give you a whole new perspective on King and his work in the last years of his life. And I'll talk a little bit about nice. Taylor and Temple. So like I highly recommend that movie. Um, so so this building, Historic Claiborne Temple, was an organizing headquarters for that strike that brought Martin Luther King to Memphis to be able to bring the conversation about race and class to America. Mm. and I was invited there because there are some folks who bought it who didn't know the history of the building when they first bought it they were they were looking to like find a place for their church and um and they didn't know what to do because they got a lot of pushback from the community here in Memphis saying like you can't because there were that's not important they were going to do stuff with the building that was not honoring of its past mm -hmm, and so they got sure. a lot of pushback 
And to their credit, we're like, okay, 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 we won't do that, but like, we don't know what to do. And one of the people on the team, his name is Greg Thompson, um, said, well, if we're going to think about what to do with the future of the building, we need to really understand the past of the building. And so they asked me to come in and to produce a musical that told the story of the sanitation worker strike, told the history of the building, the history of King and all of that stuff. And so... And that was Union, right? That was called Union, unionthemusical.com. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it um it actually was one of the most transformative experiences of my life it was like a six month we did about two years worth of work in six months which is why I moved here because I was like I cannot do this work remotely as I was living in Nashville at the time and learned about not just the history of the building but like the history of the neighborhood the history of Memphis the history mm. of Robert Church who was the first African-American millionaire and like oh this is whole like we could have a two-hour podcast just about that history and why it was so impactful for, for me. And, um, and by the time that we finished the process, two things were true. One, the folks who had brought me in to do the work said to me, like, this is actually not our work. We think this is your work. And can you, can you take leadership here over this entire project? And the other thing that I knew was that the work of the sanitation workers and Reverend Lawson and Dr. King and um, the kind of the power structure at the time, who was the mayor, was um, this man named Mayor Loeb. And like the, the thing, the interaction that they were living out wasn't in a vacuum. It was like a, um, an expression of a much longer legacy in Memphis around um, ownership and economy and race and power and all that and that we were also still living that same dynamic out in 20 at the time 18 Mm. in Memphis and that the conversation wasn't just about restoration of the building it was like about the restoration of that neighborhood of the city of of prosperity for African Americans in Memphis Memphis is a um a town that is 65% right with a 40% poverty rate and if you look at the history of Memphis that is like constructed that mm-hmm. was like you know Robert Church was the first, on like 100% deliberate on purpose if you look at the history of the town And like the anthropological evolution of race and class here in Memphis is like textbook power conversation, (laughs) textbook. And so like it was an opportunity for me to commit to a place where I could bring everything that I have to bear into one space um, with people who I love and believe in and who trusted me enough to invite me in, not just those original people, but like people all over the city from the artists community to the business community to people who I really spent a lot of time building relationships with and it gave me like an education about the relationship between race and class both historically and future facing mm-hmm. and like what our work is in terms of being able to actually I was at a, um, an event a couple weeks ago in LA and the mayor said something that I was so excited because you know we've been having this conversation about diversity and inclusion and how I don't like that language because it's yeah. like still put somebody in the power seat and yep. he said something about belonging he was like this is not a conversation about inclusion it's about creating a space where everybody knows that they belong. And Mm -hmm. it is like such a beautiful, it's been such a a beautiful um, 
education for me about, about what belonging looks like mm-hmm. and how to create belonging for everyone where mm-hmm. no one is the person sitting in the center saying, well, you belong and you belong and you belong. But it's like the difference between that and like the knowing that we belong regardless. Mm-hmm. Right. Inherently. That, that's right. And, um, and being able to also understand that we can create a space of belonging that everybody is not ready to step into because we are working to say like everyone is welcome here everybody has a sense of can have a sense of belonging but there are rules of engagement so um you don't get to come in here if you're not willing to check your privilege if you're not willing to be held accountable if you're not willing to be doing the work of looking at your own stuff and dismantling it like you're welcome but you're not allowed You can, you will sit, there's a bench outside the front door where you can sit and get ready to do your work. And when you're ready to do that work, then you can come inside. Well, that sounds like culture shift. I mean, yeah. That sounds like a, like ingredient (laughs) of culture shift, right? Like what do we agree? What are we promising each other as we move into this work? That's right. Because if you don't have those agreements, you can't. You can't shift the culture because right. because culture is a set of agreements. Like the expression of culture is a set of agreements, whether they're spoken or unspoken. And so if we're going to have a new culture. We have to have a new set of agreements that are in alignment with the core value. And for us, the core value is love. And so it's like, what does it look like to be in loving relationship? Which again, like you said earlier, doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're not going to make mistakes. Doesn't mean you're not going to blow it all up. But it, it's about intention and it's about attention right Mm -hmm. and where you put your energy Mm -hmm. and how you hold yourself accountable Mm -hmm. and how you are willing to hold other people accountable when they're out of integrity Mm -hmm. and hold them accountable with loving care Mm -hmm. not with blame not with finger pointing not with persecution but how do you hold each other accountable with love and that requires a relationship if you don't if you're not in a relationship with somebody you you will not hold them accountable lovingly you will be angry you will accuse you will point you will you know all those things and that's why like the creating the space of belonging is so has been so important in memphis um because it allows us to be loving even in moments where accountability is required and for folks who are not willing to be held accountable like you well you can't come in here and it's not because you're not welcome. It's because you're making the choice to not be in relationship in the way that that is required when love is present. Mm. It's hard. It's hard. I, I'm. I, it's hard. It is it? Like if I'm honest, it's been. This has been like professionally and spiritually and emotionally the two hardest years of my life. Like this year in particular, 2019 has been excruciating because that work is so hard the work of um holding yourself to account and then being able to hold other people to account in a loving way in this um social political economic context that we're in in this right now right now right now it is hard it is hard it is hard it well you is know it's hard someone said that one of the things that's been helping me around accountability and I forget who said this but um it was this idea that accountability like I hold you accountable um my holding you accountable means that what you have to offer really matters yes like it right it almost like implies dignity yeah and worthiness act of love 
it's an act of love because it, it means that because you could just be dis, you could just be like fuck it and dismiss yeah. people and not yeah. hold them accountable and not deem their contribution yeah. and their word worthy yeah. but actually accountability is and i think adrian marie brown said that accountability is how we come into community that's it's right. not how we come out of community that's right. it's that's actually right. how we call one another in with love that's right that is um, absolutely correct. And that's helped me, right? Like in my, mm-hmm. in like not, in, in also like honoring my own worthiness, but in like calling one another in mm-hmm. um, and, and putting mm-hmm. ourselves on the line. And you know, what I love about belonging and it's helped me to reframe it this way too is, you know, I struggle with belonging to something because to your point, it's often o- almost always owned by the white man. That's belonging right. to, right? right? Wellness owned by white yeah. men yeah. Or, or white women. Um, but when we belong to each other, it kind of gets back to the point that you made at the beginning of this conversation, which is it's about people. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. about our relationship with each other. And, yeah. and we don't belong to anything yeah. But one another, and if yeah. that's the most sacred relationship, right. then how do we not honor that? And that belonging is not rooted only in our human relationships. Like that belonging is rooted in our relationship with the divine, and that is like, and that—that's another podcast. So but that, but the thing is, like, if you are a person who's who um, push down their relationship with the with the divine in order to be able to subjugate and terrorize other people then it's very difficult for you to recall that and say oh i now know that i belong to the divine truly which means i'm connected to you we belong to each other and here's how we act accordingly that's right and so like they're right there that's our that's our issue right there that's that's what's been forgotten in order to be a person to choose money over people you have to um, you have to um, push down the knowingness of your relationship with the divine. Like our sense of belonging is not rooted in our own, in ourselves and each other. It's rooted in God. It is. It wasn't like whatever you call God, however you, if you call it that at all, if you're like, what, whatever you call it, like our, our um, relationship and belonging to each other is rooted in that. So your relationship with that is skewed or, incomplete or whatever the thing whatever you call it then that's the, right. it makes that other stuff it makes justice love and like joy and divine creativity um inaccessible to say the least so you know this is spiritual I, work it is spiritual work I, I tell people all the time i do this because of my spiritual practice not in spite of it and i think that one of the things that we have done is like separated the conversation about love and justice from our spiritual selves and, and the, like the natural law of the actual universe. And um, it makes it, it's so silly. It's like, if you read, like, if you read, if, if you read Carl Sagan's book, Cosmos, which I have done, and you just, even if you go, go on NASA's website and just understand the context that we're actually living in. Like, yes, we're living. The big, big, the big we. We're living, the, the actual, the super the big The meta we. Like, we. Here, here we are, me and you, Carrie, we're like, uh, you're in California, I'm in Memphis, and we're like, we love each other, and that's awesome. But if we looked at our relationship in the context of the universe, there's like literally more stars and there are grains of sand on the planet earth literally like literally and if you think about each one of those stars being the center of a solar system 
That's like a whole bunch of planets, a whole lot of space, a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of everything. And like, unless we can get, we can get reconnected to the vastness of the, this is so, this is so far out. I'm just being so me right now. Unless we can get connected to the vastness of the truth of the actual universe and like what it means to be connected to all of that then it's difficult to be able to say, oh, I should not choose money over people. I mean, I do think that's really important because I think we have a, a narcissistic tendency in our we culture totally do. to like navel gaze think and think we're the, we're the center, center of the universe. Of the universe. <laughs> no, totally not. We're but like there's something so far from it. There's something joyful about, I mean, even hearing you describe it and people can't see you, I can see you right now and how <laughs> how much joy that you feel in knowing that like we're specks, like we're, <laughs> we're, we're a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. So and, bigger. and there's something actually comforting about that for me. I agree. I totally agree. And it's like my favorite really thing. fucking awesome. And also like all that we don't know, like, you know, I know that you're really into sci-fi and fantasy and like, <laughs> like all that we don't know about what's out there and what's possible. Crap. I mean, and and that, the thing that it does it's for gonna me, gonna be like my the favorite quote time... from this. <laughs> Ow! The 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 thing that 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 knowing does for me is to say, like, in the grand scheme of the universe, um, my the impact I have is like small it's like the risk that i'm taking is not it's not a big the risk that i'm taking to learn how to love Mm. to learn how to transform to learn how to lean into what i know is true and right and good is such a small risk when you look at the scale Mm, of the universe it's like what is the big deal like your little ego problem your little fear your little like unknowing like it doesn't mean anything this literally means nothing so let it go let it go. What will happen? What will happen if you end up like, oh, I have less money and people think that I'm not as valuable? Like, and so what? So what? How do you see yourself in the grand scheme? How do you see yourself in the universal flow? How do you see yourself in the divine creativity? That's what matters. That's what matters. Not what, not, <laughs> not whether or not I love somebody that. thinks you're. Well, that's you know, perspective. It is perspective. And that's right. That's true perspective. And I think you're right. That's part of the reorganization of our minds <laughs> and it our is. spirit that we need to. And it's also an, an opportunity to transform the way we think about um, about spirituality and spiritual practice. And because often um, or, our organized spiritual practices are also very focused on the small myopic view of life. And we have, I think, an obligation to expand what we think um, God's purview is. Because it's not just, it's not just a little thing. It's like the whole actual, the whole actual whole universe is what is being held in divine energetic space. And um, it just makes, it just relieves the pressure. It's like... (laughs) Why not be good? Why not be right? Why not continue to try? Why not get better? Why not do those things? Because um, there's not a lot of pressure on the on the grand scheme. And like, if our responsibility is just this one little speck, like that's all we have to do is fi- figure out Earth. That's all we have to do is figure Earth out. Then let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much. 
Well, this is one of the things I so appreciate about you is you um, you take you take us out of like this sort of like blinders, you know, focused, can't see anything outside of ourselves yeah. perspective, and you help us see the big, the big, big, the big we, yeah. the big yeah. expanse, the big cosmos, the big perspective that I think is often beyond our imagination. Mm. Um, and I know that's part of your purpose. And I know the other thing that you're you're really trying to kind of expand is our idea of justice and a kind of justice mm. that includes joy. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to talk about that here because you and I <laughs> are doing a, a justice and joy um, immersion on Online in a couple yeah, weeks, which I'm, I'm super excited, excited about, about because mm-hmm. I think that too is a trade-off that somewhere yep. along the line we decided was necessary yep. to achieve yep. justice. And I know that you're really trying to disrupt mm. that, mm-hmm. but I just want to reflect that back to you that, you know, you talked about embodiment at the beginning of this call. And I, I really, I know this about you, that you really mm. embody the most expansive heart and the most <laughs> expansive mind and the most expansive story about mm. not just who we are, but who we can be. And I'm just, I'm really grateful that you're in the mm. movement and that you're pushing the movement in the way that you are. Thank you, Carrie. I'm grateful for you too. <laughs> and I'm excited to have many more Monday morning calls with you. <laughs> this is the best way to wake up, y'all. I'm going to do this all it the totally time. Is. I like feel so inspired right now. No one ever lets me talk about space. I love it. Yeah, right? Monday morning, Cosmos. Um, yes. There's so much more to talk to you about, but I, I just want to thank you. And uh, thank you for waking up with us. And thank you for... Thank you. And thank you for inspiring us in the way that you do. And I, I'm excited for many more conversations. The big me too. What did we call it the big citizen the big we citizen <laughs> brigade citizen something like that yes. yeah something's happening yeah let's keep yeah going. yeah i love you so much carrie and i i'm so grateful for the work that you're doing too like i know yeah you're 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 you are reaching for the good and i love that about you you have been since like the day before i met you i don't know what you're doing the week before i met you but i know that like you are one of the fiercest reachers for good that I know and I have so much love and respect for you and you are one of the people who make me feel like it's going to be okay because you're so earnest and so committed and I love that about you so thank mm, you thank for you. being I feel the same your way. gorgeous wonderful juicy that self that should be too. like that should be one of like our belonging agreements like you make me feel like it's going to be okay <laughs> I want that for everybody. Um, I love you, Anasa. Have an amazing week. I'll see you Thank in a couple you. weeks for our Joy and Justice event. I cannot wait. It's going to be, gonna be amazing. So good. And it's going to be fun. So good. So good. And it's going to be truth. Yes. All those things. Yes. And more. Yes. 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 All right. Take care. See you soon. While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is simple but hard. It's to cultivate self-love. Not the kind that is selfish or separate, but the kind that is radical and revolutionary, that can transform ourselves and one another and build the more joyful world that we all deserve. For more Courageous Conversations, check out Anasa's podcast called The Big We, and be sure to follow her on Instagram at Anasa Troutman. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. 
You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and share the love by telling your friends to check us out.